For the past 200 years, London Savile Row has been the gold standard for bespoke clothing. For many folks, it's where bespoke clothing truly originated. I remember visiting Savile Row myself years ago. I was in awe of not only the history, but the beauty of it. All of these incredible tailoring houses were filled with master tailors and cutters and pressers. A true gentleman's world. Thankfully, not forever. My guest this week is not only the first female master tailor on Savile Row, she's also the first female to have her own tailoring house on it. And she earned it through her talent and hard work. The funny thing is, when discussing this with her, she doesn't seem to mind or even care. She's just focused on being the best. Though I suppose when you make clothing for folks like David Beckham and the royal family, you're doing something right. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Catherine Sargent. Catherine and I discuss how she went from apprenticing to running her own shop on London Savile Row. Last but not least, we discuss how the world of tailoring is evolving and how she's continuing to pave the way for everyone to be a part of it. Catherine Sargent, it is a pleasure. It's an honor. Thanks for, thanks for chatting with me on the pod. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. Um, there's, you know, obviously, I, I met you maybe six years ago. Around. Yeah, mm-hmm. around there. Um, because I, we met through Mark Cho uh, from the Armory. But I remember you gave me and a few of my other colleagues at the time a lesson on tailoring like on, and alteration specifically. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, it sounds like I held a, a lecture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do remember. Yeah. yeah we were, um, I came down to the armory and we were talking about pressing and trousers. And I, yeah, I think I like to share the geeky side of it, you know? <laughs> well, I think the reason why I mentioned that is because when I, when I met you, I knew you, you know, Mark introduced you as a cutter and a tailor. And my knowledge of air quote cutter was still at the time somewhat small and, and not really understanding, oh, there's just a person who makes a pattern and, you know, cuts things on scissors and, and they make someone's jacket. But uh, I remember after I met you, I went down like a deep Google rabbit hole, uh, not just about who you were and, and your history, but also the entire concept of um, really like what a true cutter is um, and, and tailor. And, and I think you know, so thank you for that, because I got to understand that more than what I thought, which was, you know, unfortunately, I thought there was like a, a stencil and someone would just, you know, make some chalk outlines, snip, snip. And that was how you do it. I, I really had no idea the amount of uh, training that you had to go through. And also the fact that like, you know, which we'll we'll jump into later, like you were the first female head cutter on Savile Row. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which that that's insane. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's so it's huge. Uh, but to to kind of go back, you're you're from London, right? I'm actually from the north of England, from a place called Leeds, a smaller city in in Yorkshire. Okay. And um, but I I grew up wanting to be in London. Love clothes, love galleries, the buzz of London. I had I had family down there, and every time we went, I was just in awe of the place and how can I live and work in London? So that was the focus yeah. from like a child. <laughs> Get me out of Yorkshire. No, there's nothing wrong with Yorkshire. It's a beautiful place. I understand. But, 
it, you know, I just had bright lights, big city, and I just, you know, just did art, went to art school, and then I decided to study fashion and study fashion in London and specialize in menswear, which was quite strategic because I had never made clothes before. Right. I literally wasn't one of those kids growing up sewing. Like, you know, you hear this in your blood, it's your DNA. Yeah. I there had was a no on my D- finger when I was born. Was no DNA at all. You know, <laughs> I learned everything I learned at college. And then I was really lucky because I had this great tutor who basically said, you know, you love this technical side of it. You love the fitting. Have you heard of Savile Row? And I hadn't heard of Savile Row. And he said, go, go to Savile Row, have a look. And I and went Wait, to, how old are you in then? Oh, about like 19, 20 years old. Okay. Um, went up and had a look in the windows and I'd never seen clothes of that quality. I kind of, had, you know, had like these pictures of men that I'd just grown up with, like my father, people in the media, people mm-hmm. on TV, films, wearing these really sharp suits. And I loved like that mod culture and, you know, a nice sharp crease in the front of your trousers, right, even, right. even as a woman. I love that aspect. And it's like, this all resonated. It was a real, like, come to Jesus moment. Like, wow, this is where I want to be. And I want to make clothes as good as that. Um, but yeah. menswear, though, which was really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I came from Leeds. I hadn't made loads of clothes before. And it was, I was like, I really love menswear. But there's 60 people in my year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, five of us did menswear. It was really women's wear was so competitive. And I thought menswear at the time, you know, it was a different time. It was the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. The focus was more on streetwear, not tailoring. Tailoring was at that time really uncool. So I was uncool. <laughs> <laughs> Look at it now. It's like vibrant. It's such an exciting world menswear. It's come on so, so much right, right. in that time. But yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I'm extremely passionate about. And I think it just, the whole thing came, it kind of clicked. It's, I just think there's something about a suit. There's something about a tailored garment. Mm-hmm. When it goes on a man's body, it does something. And I just think, why? How? How can you make something look better? How can you make someone look better? Um, it's the craft of tailoring, it's making, but it's also the fit and the cloths. And oh, you're going to get me started now. I can go on all day about this. <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> right, right. Um, it's, it's all of that. that it's so, a magical thing. So you, you're, in, you're in school and you're studying tailoring and you, and you go down to Savile Row and you see stuff and you lose your mind. What, <laughs> I know a lot of this stuff, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, did you have to get an apprenticeship first to, to try to work there? or what was, what was the process like for you getting your first job on Savile Row? Well, that day when I went up Savile Row, I went into some of the businesses and, you know, a lot of, a lot of them didn't welcome me. You know, why do you want to be in the tailoring? Um, it's not a place for women, you know, and I, I didn't let that sort of beat me down too much, but I went in one of the smaller tailors, a mm-hmm. tailor called Demon and Goddard, just around the corner on Savile Row on New Burlington Street then. And uh, they were like older guys, run their own business, small, beautiful, uniforms in the window. And they said, yeah, do you want to come up next week? And I was like, sure. So I did work experience at this tailor's for about a year mm-hmm. during my final year. And it kind of was a real eye-opener because you, you met, I met um, the trade, people working behind the scenes. They really right. you know, 
introduced me to the community. They had a chef that came in and cooked lunch for them every day. They, the, guy, the guy who, um, the first cutter I, I saw watch um, Strike Out Pan use wine bottles as weights. And as he was cutting the suit out, this is 10 o'clock in the morning, he was drinking the wine as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was, it's quite a, um, then it was a real sort of drinky community. Okay. So, you know, I could hold a pint. It helped. <laughs> right. You know, so as soon as you're you know, done with the day, you, everyone would go to the pub and then you'd meet tailors from other businesses and you got to know people. And they knew me as this you know, young girl who wanted to get into tailoring from college. And in that year, you know, the more, the more that happened, the more people I met, it was just um, an opportunity a real great opportunity were you the only woman like when, when you're so you're at the pub and you're hanging out with all these tailors are, are you the only woman yeah yeah what <laughs> what was that what was that like <laughs> i mean obviously this didn't seem to phase you at all i mean you you seem astoundingly resilient just you know not taking no and just keep going i think they liked me because i could drink pints rather than halves <laughs> and it was like oh okay um you know i, I was I thought I want to be one of the boys. Actually, I don't. Why should I be treated differently? And you know, they didn't treat me differently. Actually, they they right. were curious about why I wanted to learn tailoring. But I think when you've been working in that industry all those years, before there was really you know great spotlight on it, to have a young person come and say, "I really, I'm so interested in how you cut, how you fit," you know, I'm really, you know, it's it's hugely flattering as a craftsperson. And I think they just welcomed that interest and they could share it. And there's the sort of days of, oh, I don't want to teach anybody because they might steal my job are over. And I think it's just, it was, you know, it was, they were, they liked, you know, I think the excitement I had for it and the interest, you know, they, they enjoyed that too. Right. So. What was, you know, so, so you're there and you're, you're doing this work study. What was the next step from that? I mean, because the people that apprentice, I think, especially for Americans that are listening, um, a lot of times you think, oh, I'm going to apprentice a trade that's like six months, yeah. you know, and which with tailoring and stuff on the row, I mean, it's years, right? Yeah, it's it's four to five years, coat making, trouser making, similar, cutting, similar. But you know, like the ultimate is if you can learn to do everything. So I can, so I can do a button And that's hole. you, you can do everything. Yeah. I yep. can make a suit from start to finish. And I, I don't, you know, cutting's my specialism. It's what I trained in. And I made clothes around that a lot um, with, the, with the masters who were making coats. So I, did, I worked like weekends, evenings, you know, all around the clock just to learn as much as possible. Right. Um, started making waistcoats for clients as, as well. Um, right. But Wait, can we know, sidebar real quick? Can you yeah. define in your terms what cutting is because I tried to do it before we started, but I, I know I didn't do it justice. So a cutter is a person who measures the client, cuts the pattern from scratch, drafts a pattern. Some cutters use block patterns. Um, like a block would be like pre, pre. Yeah. Like okay. a, a template that you can adapt. Understood. That if they have a house style, they tend to work from blocks or they might have a system that they use. Um, in, this, in essence, I always say it's the architect of the suit or the architect of the garment. You know, okay. You're drafting the plan. You're putting those points down that right. the tailor follows. So you cut the pattern, you cut the fabric, 
you make the mark on the cloth and the tailor who sews follows your mark, follows your instruction. And you oversee and, um, the whole process and the production of the garment. So you, you know you have, the quality, you have quality control, client management, fitting, everything. Everything. Okay. So you're, you're like the, the creative director, but also the technical director at the same time. And the quality. Yeah. yeah. With a team of amazing builders. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get us off track. I, I just, no, no. I think that that helps really define because um, the term cutter, you know, in the US and stuff is, is tossed around really loosely and especially the term tailor. Yeah. If I'm coming through customs here when I arrive, they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a tailor. Because if you say cutter, like, what the hell? And then you're never going to get through the gates, you know. <laughs> it's what I say on my profession at the bank. Uh, you know, it's, pe- people understand that. Right. Um, as a profession, much more. You know, I make garments, tailor garments. But actually, in Savile Row terminology, that's incorrect. I'm a cutter. Right. And you're either a, a cutter, a coat maker, a waistcoat maker, a trouser maker, a finisher, or a presser. So all those people make those components to make suit so it's not just you it's a team jeez and and but as you had to learn all that what was the first the first um you know piece that you had to to make that where you had to kind of learn the ropes what was that like was it trousers first well i'd say i was employed first as a trimmer but mm-hmm. actually another profession that i le- let out, <laughs> left out there um, it's okay so when a cutter cuts a suit it goes to the trimmer to put the trimmings in, so the buttons, the linings, the canvas. And sometimes the cutter will specify exactly what canvas is um, they want. It's, you know, your job as a trimmer to match up the buttonhole thread. Right. Everything, all those little components that go in to make the suit. Now, and you kind of like stock control and you liaise with the tailors and push the work around the department. So, you, you know, it's a go-between job between the cutting and the tailoring department. Um, so you, you get to know all the innards. The mm. things that make the suit. Right. And then you see the guys actually using those innards to construct the suit. So if you put the wrong color thread in, it's on your shoulders. You know, rarely would a tailor, because they're so busy, say, does this color look all right? And then you, know, you, you, you want to make sure that everything is perfect. So it helps to have OCD. <laughs> and they literally, I am still like that now. Like, I want to check the color of that thread because you can put the wrong color on something and it can totally change the look of the finished garment oh for sure so it's that it's that thing so i started off doing that and i started sewing so doing bastes doing mm-hmm. plain base so quite often we would do a plain base for new clients so just that's just a jacket tacked together or a pair of trousers tacked together or a waistcoat or in london we call them well, those days we call them vests right right um and you know that sort of to learn you know get your sewing skills up to scratch um and then i worked and started making waistcoats. Mm. Um, so I was trimming and making waistcoats. And then there was a cutting position that came up. And I was so ambitious then. I'm fairly ambitious now, but then, I mean, you wouldn't want to have known me. I want to be a cutter. I'd love to do that. Because it's, you know, at Geese and Hawks, where I learned my profession and where I you know, got a job when I graduated, the tailoring, if, you've, if you go down Savile Road, the workrooms are in the basement. Mm-hmm. So I was in the basement and the tailors would generally be in the basement, but then you'd go and see your client on the shop floor. So it, I, I thought, I don't want to work 
on a board looking at a wall in isolation right. being a great craftsman or craftswoman craftsperson I want to interact with people I want to talk I want to get excited about things so it was it was clear to me that was the side of it the, the sort of profession I wanted to go into was the cutting side and working with the tailors to kind of make the ultimate garment for people right so that position pops up and what happened I was, I said, could I please, you know, apply for it? And my boss said, yeah, have a go. And they taught me how to strike. So then you, we were sort of a, affectionately termed a striker. Nothing to do with football. Okay. <laughs> so you would be a, you would, the cutter would cut the pattern and then you would strike it out. So in smaller companies, the cutter would do everything. But in a larger uh, bespoke business, you would have a striker next to you. So it's like an assistant cutter. But striking, the outer striking is actually chalking around the pattern ah. and actually putting those marks on the cloth. So it's learning to work with different fabrics. And I remember one time, one of my first jobs, you know, I used to smoke in those days. I don't smoke now. God, it's years ago. <laughs> there was a velvet uh, check fabric. Okay. And this, this gentleman had ordered this smoking jacket and it was a black watch tartan. Mm. But you couldn't see the check because on velvet the pile is the, the pattern on the pile so it's you can't see the check on the wrong side of the fabric right but you have to cut it to match so oh. i was like how am i going to do this and my, the cutter was like you figure it out <laughs> so i had to go and have a cigarette before i i cut that one and i think you know it's those sorts of things it's problem solving they teach you the basics but then you're like every fabric's a different challenge some fabrics don't come in Right. shrunk or you know you, you, you know you just learn to you handle fabric and um, it's a really great sort of um, sort of introduction because when you're actually selling and when you're actually advising clients you know what fabrics work well for what garments you've right got the, you know you've got the hands-on touch and feel with things so when someone's like I want cashmere pants you're like eh. yeah, exactly you know you want to <laughs> yeah but I want to wear them every day well why do you want that so yeah you advise them um, and I'd try and like stay clear of printed velvet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think that's something too that, that gets really overlooked. Um, I have been lucky enough to, to meet a lot of tailors over the years and different, not only do different tailors have different like clothing styles, but they also have different sort of uh, like customer service styles in which um, how they communicate to you. And I think uh, knowing your, your clientele, you know, is helpful, but obviously, you know, an American guy, I, I learned, you know, and I'll say this, you don't have to say this, like an American guy hates being told no, you know, like, oh no, we don't have that. Or no, that's not what you want. Like they don't want to feel insulted when they come in and they say, Hey, I want a super 220 fabric, which is like the shiniest thinnest kind of in my opinion like not very good even though it's very expensive but trying to educate that person without making them feel stupid but for some reason um usually the person making it is not always the best person that's selling it and having that conversation Mm -hmm. and but all my interactions with you that i've ever had have always been you know uh, you have a very like calming and um, like gentle way of suggesting things that doesn't make me feel stupid. 
And in terms of like an experience, like a tailor experience, it's really pleasant. And I've worked with, you know, some Italian tailors where they're like, this is what you want. And you're like, no, I want this. And they're like, no, you're ugly if you get that. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> well, there's a confidence, isn't there? There's a confidence in I know I'm right. I've studied and there you go. But I'm, right. I'm not like that. I'm quite, quietly confident, you know, assuring and um, reassuring, hopefully. But I, I try and find out what the client wants. And for me, it's, it's okay. It's about the craftsmanship. It's about my scale, things that I've learned mm-hmm. along the way. But it's how I communicate with people and how I actually listen. People, some people don't listen. Actually, you know, <laughs> no. I'm just going to, I'm just going to tell you what, I'm just going to tell you what you should have. Actually, do you know what? The art of bespoke, it's about the client. It's not about me. I'm not this celebrity tailor. I'm, you know, a fantastic, well, kind of. <laughs> but people know who I am, but I think it's, I put the client at the heart of everything that I do. So, right. you know, I've got clients in all walks of life, all different professions than from different countries, but it's that relationship and it's that understanding, it's that listening. So like, it's like it's a problem solving with style and with great cloth and looking at someone and thinking like, you know, this is your style. I'm out. The more you tell me about you and your lifestyle, the better you know, fabrics I can suggest, the better garments I can suggest. And I think when you're really honest and authentic, people come back to you because you give them the truth rather than just saying this is what you should have because it's really expensive. A lot of businesses are driven on commission. They want to get the, sell the most expensive cloth. Yep. Yep. And the person who's making it quite often might go, oh my God, how am I going to put this together? You know, you, but if you missell something, mismake something for someone, are they going to come back? You know, the whole idea of tailoring is, you know, I know I have clients that only come to me. I know I have clients that come to me and go to other tailors because mm. they like working with different people. They like their you know, different a variety of styles. But it's, it's that whole idea of trust. You're building up a relationship of trust. So right. I think that you said people don't like to hear the word no. You can't have it. If someone comes to me and says, I want a super 250s, I'm like, why? It's great, isn't it? Why? Let's have a chat about that fabric. <laughs> and then you, like, they really, someone's told them it's the best. Is it the best for you right now? Is it the best? Why is it the best? Yeah. Let's debate it. And actually, at the end of it, if they really want it, they can have it. And actually, that's a great sale for me. Yeah. Much more expensive than making a, a, you know, a classic worsted. Yeah. But then is that client actually going to be pleased with it because they, they've got an expectation of wearability? Like, yeah, and they I'm want to wear, wear it every day. Yeah. So you say, yeah, it's great. It's amazing. But have you got a valet who's going to press this thing? And, yeah. You know. <laughs> so I'm... I love these cloths and I love the way that these manufacturers are taking it to the next level. Um, I do a lot with like Laura Piana, beautiful soft fabrics. Right. And people are like, oh, can you make me a whole suit out of this? And you're like, I'd love to make you a pair of trousers out of it. And I will, but you know, they're not going to hold the shapes well. And you could do this and you could do that instead. So I think people appreciate that honesty. Right. And so, I mean, I just was talking about that because you know, I think your style is really good, but when you are, when you were, you know, trying to become this cutter and you're working, was there anyone who was like, hey, let me tell you how to talk to people? Or did you just kind of figure that out on your own? That's a good question because I had the like privilege and honor of working with Robert Gieve, who um, was fifth generation of the Gieve family of Gieves and Hawks. Yeah. He's the OG Gieve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was, he was fantastic. He tra- he tried it's like the family, you know, you feel, you felt as an extension of the family and the history of that firm. Mm-hmm. You know, people talk about heritage. 
that's true heritage. That company's been going since the late 1700s and you knew it. And you had this amazing guy who you really felt like any question, there wasn't too much you could ask him. He'd enjoy telling you things and advising you. So, for example, you know, certain uniforms, how they should be cut. You know, I, I did a lot of uniforms as well. And, but not only that, I felt intimidated and overwhelmed by the history of Gaves and Hawks and Savile Row I, when I was an apprentice. I, and I thought the only way to overcome that is to learn as much about it as possible and talk about the company to the clients. And he really guided me on how to be with clients because he would um, tell, tell me, you know, I was intimidated. Like, what, you know, how can you find a common ground with mm-hmm. a the landed gentry, and yeah. I'm a girl from Yorkshire who just loves tailoring. Um, how can I talk to them about this? You know, and I think a lot of people pretend that they have that lifestyle to try and associate themselves with their clients. But right. I think if you're actually genuinely interested in them and um, you make notes, so like if they've got you know, three kids, their kid's doing this, or they're going through a change in career, or this suits for that, you know, you remember that. That's customer service. So Robert Gieve knew the clients. He knew things about them. And he said, you know, don't make it about you, make it about them. So that's where that came from. And I, I think the intimidation and um, working with some so prestigious people, I mean, I, I can't even tell you. I mean, obviously, they had very high-profile clients. Mm-hmm. Working with people from different cultures, royal family, from different, you know, worlds, different you know, you have, how can you relate to that? You just have to concentrate on doing a really excellent job for them and show your interest in what they want and the tailoring. And I always liken it myself, the experience to, the only thing I can relate it to is if you go to a hairdresser and you take a picture of a style or that hairdresser doesn't talk to you or have, or he's just going to give you a cut that's not right for you. Right. If you go and they're really interested how often do you wash your hair? Like, what's it like? This, you know, I wouldn't do that. You get that really sort of interest. Then you, it excites you about working with that person. And right. I think that's um, something. There's a that, trust that forms. That's, that's something that he really instilled in all of us. And we all felt incredibly proud to work there. It was, we had, we had career paths. We had, you know, I, I knew as an apprentice, but I knew there was a goal and he did too. And they wanted you to develop as people and the more you contributed for the business the more you were rewarded so that's really important to me in my business now that we've got I've got a neat tight team and people are happy in the work and you know you you can manage it to a certain extent but really you've got to let people you know become fulfilled and develop themselves right so this the head cutter or the cutter job opens up you apply for it did you get it oh yeah okay (laughs) And how many, how many years did it take for you to be a cutter? Well, I started at Geese and Holtz in 96. Okay. And I was heavily supervised and measured my first customer in the year 2000. But that was only because I pushed up a bit, but also mm-hmm. they decided they needed a cutter there on Saturdays because number one, Savile Row, you, get, you still get clients walking in Saturdays. We were open Saturdays. And you might miss a crucial bespoke sale if you don't have someone there to take measurements. Right. And the guys who were training me, they didn't want it. I'm not working weekends. I was like, I'll do it. I'll, right. I'll do it. So one of my first clients, he was 
um, foreign royal family mm-hmm. came in on Saturday. Didn't realise you know who he was, and the family was from. Made cut, measured him three suits, and he was my first client. I still work with him today. Um, wow! And I think that you know, they they said, "Are you sure?" And they made sure I knew how to take measurements, and I was. I knew my way around cutting a pattern, but it's the fitting. You, you learn that as you go along, really. So I always said, if I run into trouble, I'll let you know. Or if I've got a problem with this sleeve, or would you come and have a look at this, um, this fitting? So, you know, everyone's in it working together. And so there, was pe- there were people that you could go to if you had problems. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I made mistakes. And the only way you learn is by making mistakes. But it's the, it's the intent, you know, you try not to make mistakes. You, you're not complacent with it. For me, I just felt so privileged to be working on these garments that I wanted them to be the best they possibly could be and right. for their clients to be happy. So that was the driver. And then there, there's a, I mean, I'll say this, there's a photo of you and Prince Charles. Well, how, how did that happen? Is, uh, did he come visit you? Are you making stuff for him? You don't have to tell all, but just, <laughs> just the... Um, Gigs and Hawks have the royal warrant for the Prince of Wales. Right. And it was a commemorative year. I think it was 25 years, something. It's, uh, I can't remember the actual um, year because we were just so overwhelmed. Okay. We heard he was coming and, you know, protocol was like, you know, he's going to come. He wants to see the tailors. He wants to see the people that make stuff. Right. And um, we were told he'd be in and out in half an hour. And they had arranged for press to be there. So you know, all the um, top um, newspapers sent their photographers down. There was a Times. It was, it was overwhelming. And there was... Were you still smoking you know, at the time? No, I gave it up. <laughs> Actually, I gave up because when I started cutting, I thought, I don't want to smell of smoke. It's oh, awful, yeah. you know, and I just thought... You should see all my Italian jackets when they come back. <laughs> well, you, just you like, know, oh, they were smoking when they made this. <laughs> yeah, and I just think, why don't I smoke? Yeah, it is cool. It looks really cool, but actually, it wasn't for health reasons. It was more for, oh, God, I don't want to be smel- smelly. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's that's a different reason to stop. <laughs> right. But yeah, I, and I think, you know... I stopped drinking pints as well. I mean, sometimes, you know, you can you can have a oh. pint, but I'm not like a regular pint drinker, and we certainly don't drink like they did in the days when I started. Oh yeah. In actual fact, Geese and Hawks they had a policy where you weren't allowed to consume alcohol throughout the day, so which is very had, rare compared to yeah. some of the older places there. So you just had to get your day's consumption in, in the evening. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Charles was, is coming. Yeah. So he he came and he lingered and talked to us all. And there was this moment which was really special when he said, I'd like to cut something. And he grabbed, you know, my shears. And I think that photograph you're talking about is when he's actually cutting a suit. You know, I showed him how to do a little bit of it. And that the, the guy whose suit that it was didn't never knew that the Prince of Wales had. Oh, really? <laughs> started, it was a customer's Oh, yeah. Was, <laughs> <laughs> and so he spoke, he, he stayed for way longer than they said he would and he spoke to all of our tailors and all of our apprentices um notice how i say ah oh, i still think it's my 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 family and my company it's well not. <laughs> i mean it goes to show the impression yeah, that it made upon you yeah exactly but um, several is like that you know that all of those guys in different businesses are it's all like that few things are as important to me as scent 
If I don't smell good, I can't feel good. Lately, I've been obsessed with Fleur. Fleur makes fantastic, non-toxic, gender-free perfumes that smell incredible. For luxurious perfume that's all about good, clean, and fun, try Fleur. That's P-H-L-U-R. Fleur's online process is simple. You get to know each of their scents with pictures, words, and even music playlists on their site. Because a perfume is more than a scent. Then you actually try them on your own skin and see how it works for your life. The office, the weekends, you name it. Fleur's fragrances are hypoallergenic, cruelty-free, vegan, sustainably sourced, and packaged with recycled materials. They're doing this right, and they're not destroying the world in the process. I've been wearing Hepcat, and it's quickly become my go-to scent for everything. It's a subtle and warm scent that's perfect for the winter. And this is perfume, folks, not some toilet water that goes away in 10 minutes or some silly thing you spray into the air and walk into. Fleur spends four times per bottle on ingredients than the other folks, and you can tell from the moment you put it on. Go to Fleur.com today and use promo code BLAMO to get 20% off your first custom Fleur sample set. Pick three cents to try and get credit towards a full-size bottle of your favorite. Not bad, right? That's promo code BLAMO at Fleur.com to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. That's P-H-L-U-R.com. So when when does Catherine Sargent, the company, start? Because so you've worked your way up. You went from not being allowed on Savile Row to being a cutter, and the first female one. And now when when does the business start for your for yourself? In two thousand and nine, I became head cutter, which is a beyond a cutter. <laughs> oh, forgive me. Okay, so you were a cutter, and then. Yeah. This another is, almost another 10 years to yes, head cutter. Yeah, so, so um, cutter and then, yeah, almost another 10 years to head cutter. So the head cutter was retiring. I put myself forward and, you know, I won the promotion and it was the first time a woman had got to that position in a Savile Row tailoring house. So at the time, I, it was quite, it's taken years to sort of think that's momentous, but, you know, in the history of Savile Row, at the time I was like it's no big deal I just want to get on and do the job I want to prove I can do it <laughs> yeah it seems it's like more people cared about it than you did especially yeah. when you know other people have introduced you as like this is the first female head cutter you're just mm. like oh come on God, I just wanted, didn't want to irritate the guys who taught me it's like why is she getting all the spotlight we taught her we've worked just as hard you know and uh, I think that was for me you know it's it's really humbling when you know People have worked in this profession. You know, tailoring was just a trade, just a trade, like um, becoming a plumber or an electrician. Mm-hmm. The people that taught me hadn't been to university and done a degree in fashion design. They were, you know, they came out of school because, and I, I think they can all say this and admit this, they weren't particularly brilliant at school. Right. Came straight out from their, like, um, O-level uh, equivalents in yeah, those yeah. days. Into, you know, their parents would take them into a trade. And then the trend for going into a trade sort of fell off. So there wasn't the value that we place on it now. It was just a, just a job like anything else. Right. And I think now there's this value to it. You know, um, all, they all said to me, you wasted your time doing a degree. You've wasted years. You could have been so much further on in your career. But I would never have got that option and that foot in the door if I hadn't have done the degree and come into it that way. Oh, okay. And then the way I view it was I valued it more than just a trade. So when, it, when I became head cutter, I just, 
the, there was publicity around that um, and people wanted to talk to me and gigs and hearts. I have, again, a load of media around it. And it was, I was pretty uncomfortable with it at the, mo- at the time because I didn't want it to be a big fuss and I just wanted to be part of Savile Row. I didn't want to stand out. I wanted to right. melt away and fit in. So, it, you know, I was almost apologising. I'm really sorry I've got to this point and, you know, I really respect you and you've taught me and I couldn't be in this position without you and your time teaching me. So, and the fact that the company bestowed their faith in me, you know, the whole thing was overwhelming. Right. And so how long were you there before you decided to to start your own? So when I came, well, I was at Geese and Horse for 15 years in total, which is a long time. It's so totally dope. <laughs> you say dope in back in London. I'm going to start saying that. Okay. And, the, and the the I became head cutter in 2009, and it was. I thought that that I would feel fulfilled, and the company had um, changed a lot. And I thought, not only do I want to be head cutter, I want to have a say. I want to be on the board. I want to go go further within this. And I think I just, I had a few things happened at once. And I've always had this um, curiosity and ambition to do something right. on, on my own. And I think it was after that promotion, I thought, is this it? No, I want more. I, w- I think I can do more in this field. I think I've got more to say. I've got more to try. And it naturally led me to start thinking about how I would do a bespoke tailoring business, my approach, how it would work. And I'd started making a lot of suits and clothes for myself. And we had women, partners of clients or clients saying, you know, there's a woman that I work with. She needs tailoring really badly. You look great. Can I give her your details? But Geese really didn't want to pursue the women's side at all. And I saw there was a real opportunity to do bespoke for both men and for women. Mm. And I wanted my business to be much more um, my brand, you know, and I, I think I'd, I'd learned so much from Geese and Hawks and I, I sort of, I, I was Geese and Hawks through and through, but then, and I'm, I'm still so fond of the business there, but I wanted to do it differently, do it my way. So I kind of grew away from it. I kind of wanted to go beyond it and do something really modern. Right. With this traditional craft. So what, what was that conversation like when you said, hey, I'm packing up? They didn't believe me. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> they thought I was joking. <laughs> so no, I really, I really, um, I really would, you know, I really, um, I really think I need to, I need to do something different. Lots of professions, people move around all the time. Very, you know, the bespoke world's so small. Sure. You tend to work for one company all your life and get the carriage clock and, I think I just, I had this, I had to... Hold on, what's the carriage clock? The carriage clock, don't you have that? So long service. It's like you you would get a carriage clock presented to you from the company for long service. And normally it would have the date of and the years of your service and your name engraved on it. That was quite a traditional thing. I remember when I started at Geese, one of the gentlemen who was in the payroll department, he got this carriage clock and we all had a drink to celebrate. He'd done... 30 years for the business, 30 years loyal service. Can you imagine working somewhere 30 years? No. They reward you with a clock. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> and I think carriage <laughs> clocks, you know, you, everyone wants one of those on their mantelpiece, don't sure, you? Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, it's the kind of 
I wanted that clock. I want to do 30 years. My dad had worked for Mercedes-Benz and had done 25 years. Right. And, you know, people did stayed with businesses a long, long time. Sure. And I couldn't even imagine the opportunity to actually go out and be an entrepreneur, you know, and have that kind of, um, I don't know, confidence. Right. So you go in there and you're telling that and, they, and they're just like, no, like, we don't, we don't believe you? Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> and I said, I'm not sure yet, but I've, you know, I'll see things I want to explore. And um, I was on a three-month notice period, which was the hardest three months I worked in that business because it was like a long goodbye. Right. You know, I just wanted them to say, yeah, so you're you gave leaving. them a three-month heads up that you were leaving? Yeah, it was in my contract. Oh, okay. So they basically, if you know, they tie you in, but also it's like a security if, sure. you know, they so decide. So they can find someone or yeah. stuff? Yeah, and I think that that was the hardest thing because it was time sort of right to the end of the the year Christmas time and so everyone was in party mode anyway and I was just like I was at the back of the party crying going what am I doing (laughs) leaving this business but I figured you know if it went wrong I could always go and get a job somewhere else sure I've got skills so someone will have me surely yeah um and I, I think just I needed to step out from it because I was so much part of it. I was unhealthy work-life balance, like beyond it. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, I just, I'd, I'd given so much to the business. And they'd given so much to me, but I, I just thought, is that it? Is, do I want to just go for the clock or do I want to step out and do something creative? And actually, I can only liken it to, it's like a freeing experience, but also starting something from scratch. It just fulfills so much creative needs I had and desires. And I, I can see, I'm not just a cutter, I can see the business aspect and the business approach. Mm. And I think at Geese, I would have just been the cutter, the business stuff. Other people did that, you know? Right. So you, you wouldn't ever be able to have your hands in, in I everything. Don't think, I don't think so, because it's so many different. It's a super brand. There's so many different yeah. managers and different stuff. So the bespoke part department is a small cog in a big wheel. and um, you know, I wanted to do something that was really bespoke focused. Right. So you're, you head out, you ship off, and did you start recruiting people? Or, I mean, was it just, you're like, did you know when, when you finally left, where you're like, actually, I'm going to start my own tailoring company? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, you had that. I had it, and I wrote this really um, shady business plan. When I say shady, <laughs> it's like, I think if anyone who's done business degrees and business schools were read it, they <laughs> So just like not very good. I, I downloaded a template on how to write a business plan. I mean, this. That's I mean, fine. Had, yeah. And then. Google's and, your friend. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's all out there. And then I, I, worked, I worked through all the questions. I worked through all the um, things. And I, I knew how to cut a suit, but I didn't know how to run a business. I know how much cloth costs. I know how much we pay tailors. I know how much rents are roughly I didn't know much about tax and I didn't know much about look there's so many things right yeah PR and, mar- PR and marketing and everything so I left um wrote this business plan just to work through for my own sanity really and decided I would start on a very low cost setup I wouldn't seek investment I just wanted to try and do it all on my own mm-hmm. and so I I had a word with a tailor that I knew around the corner um, on Sackville Street, which is almost an extension of Savile Row running down to Piccadilly in London, if you know it. Mm-hmm. There's a tailor there, Mayor Mortimer, and they actually rented me a board in their shop. So I left Geese and then started working from them. So, 
not you know as a completely independent tailor but within their space so I was able to use their cloth swatches their cloth books and their fitting rooms and do the cutting there and I wasn't alone I knew the guys quite well from just you know like the social seeing the community in Savile Row but they had more of us like a, it's a smaller business they had more of a hands-on day-to-day running of the business I was able to learn so much from them because I'd been in this like brand um it's a, it's a total difference I'm a real commercial business to this archaic old tailors and right. the guys who were running it were really supportive and helpful and I just learned so and you know in Giesenholz we used to make our clients coffee um and we'd have a nice like coffee area and drinks and stuff yeah this place like there was people swearing, the guy outside smoking, you know, mess. A styrofoam you know, cup and a thermos. Yeah, and some clients <laughs> were coming in and going, no drinks. I'm like, sorry, uh, when I get my <laughs> own place. And then I was so like micromanaging about how, where, what their experience was. Oh. But, it, um, you know, I set up, we did a very, very, a friend of mine helped me. We did a very, very basic website. So if people looked for me, they'd find me. Sure. Um, in my name, that's why I decided to call it in my name, you know, Catherine Sargent. And, you know, I had all these fancy ideas of calling it all this different stuff. But someone said to me, Call, you know, you are the person, so just be you. Yeah. Um, and so people, you know, found me. And then actually a lot of the clients that sought me out were entrepreneurs. It was like a, a, such a bold move, but they respected it. And they, some of them, you know, I've worked with for years. And then it attracted new business actually as well. Um, and people are curious, like, why would you start that? business um i want to come and have a chat with you why you know who are you and oh it's good that's good (laughs) Mm. and then i mean then you kind of blow up right because then you're on bbc and you're on magazines and yeah so i had this um i rented this um space for about a year and a half Mm -hmm. which gave me um time to sort of build up a deposit for my first commercial property so i've got a place um brook street on the first floor and that's about 10 minutes north from Savile Row. Mm-hmm. And I just made it like a really, really beautiful space. I thought, I'm asking people to come away from Savile Row. I couldn't afford a Savile Row rent, but this is a commercial property where I can create my own space. Yeah. Don't have to worry about the styrofoam coffee cups. <laughs> have a really awesome, you know, coffee maker and nice, a nice place for customers to lounge and, and relax and have their fittings and see us working. But I also wanted to do it really really beautifully to say this is my brand this is this is about quality and craftsmanship so everyone's I wanted to have the wow factor so I spent quite a lot of money having like creating that feeling um and then you know it was just me initially but then I started employing people so now we're a team of five and when we went to Brook Street there were three and so you know it's just it's a nice size to be and you know you want to do more. But then the landlords from Savile Row approached me a year later and said, why are you not on Savile Row? We'd love you to be on Savile Row. And you're like, and uh. <laughs> I said, I'm not at that point yet in the business. And they said, well, we've got space coming up. Would you like to try it out? So I said, let me think about it. I'll come back to you. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, I don't think I could deal with it. How do, you know, I'm not a shop person. I'm not, I would say I'm a tailor, not a retailer. But mm. um, actually, I don't believe that anymore. I think there's retails adapting and you can be both. But the, um, the, the shop came up. I, I thought, yeah, I'll try it. And we did six months initially. 
and then another six months. And when we, you know, we gave, I work with an amazing um, PR, a small PR company, and they just sent a note to the Evening Standard business ep- editor, which is you know, the London Evening Paper. Sure. And they ran the story that I was opening the shop, and it was the first time a woman had had a name on a business on in the street of Savile Row, you know. And wait, what year is this? <laughs> this is 2016. Okay. Just two years ago. <laughs> Still recovering. And then they, then they ran it that night. Um, the BBC rang up and the Today programme said, we want to send a car for you. Will you come and um, be on, our, be on our, our breakfast show in the morning? And we want to talk about this achievement. And I was like, really? Oh, okay, great. I'm having my hair done and I've got to get to my shop to open it. So they said, we'll get you on, we'll get you, we'll get you there. And when I arrived at the shop, we did an interview and then I arrived at the shop and there was about 10 photographers outside. All there waiting. Little paparazzi action. And they curated <laughs> all these images. They got, all took it in turns, all worked very well together. All oh, like, nice. And so, like the photographer, they were Getty. So basically, uh, the worldwide press used use Getty images mm-hmm. and Rex mm-hmm. images. So they, they basically had the images ready to go. So it just went global. And we were overwhelmed with requests. And then the BBC filmed, I was on the news that night. Um, we were doing media to Australian TV shows. I was on a live breakfast Australian TV show okay. talking about it. So yeah, it just, it went crazy. And then when we were in the shop after, after this died down, People would come from different countries and come in and say hello because they'd heard or seen me in the news and they wanted to come and say, well done. And you're like, really? You've actually made time to come and see me on your holiday or on your business trip. And so the whole thing was really was very special, very right. unique. That's insane. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. But, you know, and I, I think one of the things I wanted to call out that uh, we had lunch together um, a while back and you were talking about your staff and your employees and it I've had a lot of hope and excitement too when you were telling me this because you know I've worked at places where the employees are there are basically just like cogs in the machine right they're they're there they're all replaceable they're all expendable it's not a big deal and you were talking about you know your staff and and how you wanted to make sure that people felt valued and people wanted to stay around and, and how important they were to your company. And um, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know what all of Savile Row is like, but I know a, a fair amount. And I think, you know, oftentimes the work experience is um, the boss being like, you should be lucky that you're here. Mm. When, when I talk to you, you talk about how lucky you are that they work for you. Mm. I just think, you know, you're the culmination of great people, people, you know, you've had the opportunity to work with, work for, meet. And the guys that work for me, you know, I, I, they're excited about what they do. And I embrace that and mm-hmm. think, you know, we're, we're good, but how can we be better? You know, how can I make you better at the job that you're doing already? And, you know, I remember what it was like, there's nothing worse than feeling undervalued at work going to, especially when you're, you're doing a skillful job and right. thinking no one appreciates it or actually there's no career plan. So I think I just relate it to my own experience and think, you know, 
where when 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 was I unhappy and when when did it work and I think people get the, you get the best out of people when you you know em, embrace their ambition and also fill the gaps so like okay it's your ambition but what's the ambition for my business and how can I get the best out of that person but make it great for my business as well right and look at results and you know it, I think I'm I'm very proud of my team very very close team um, I think I can afford to be like that because obviously I have a much smaller business. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I want to have that values going through completely, always. And I think, you know, I do know in the larger firms, sometimes it gets disjointed and people don't know what's happening yeah. with, the, with the tailors. But also, you know, some of the guys that I work with at Geese, I'm still very much in touch with um, the tailors. And I do see them as family. You know, you're at work more sometimes more than you are at home. Yeah. And especially yeah. when you're away from home. And Savile Row is very diverse in its immigrant community. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's, it's, it's very self-supportive. People look out for each other behind the scenes. And it's very rare. It's not like fashion. Like all the businesses and the people within those businesses do talk to each other. Mm. So, you've, you know, even though I was on Savile Row as a woman... I was one of them. Right. I, they, they respect the fact that I've done the training. They respect the fact that I get it. I get how hard it, it is to learn to be a trouser maker or learn to be a coat maker, to work that job every day. And I think that's, that's the, the, the thing. We all sort of have respect for each other's craft. Right. That's really beautiful. Serious. Thanks. That's really good. <laughs> um, so we're in New York, actually right now but you're you're doing trunk shows all over the place right so you you are here you go to dc what where other places do you go san francisco okay uh chicago right and yeah i've got quite a number of clients over here and i i love traveling over here nice and you 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 make it here often now three times a year okay yeah about three times a year and you know i can't go to every city but People can come to you. It sounds like you're close enough. Yeah. And I think, you know, I remember when I started traveling out here, the first trip I did was in the year 2000. Okay. And that was with Geese and Hawks. Right. And I've been coming here three times a year ever since. So I feel like I I know it. I know it well. And I think that whole thing about understanding your customer and um, the sort of trends and the, the way people live their lives here you know their lifestyle it's very different to london um and di- each city is different you know you can't look at the whole of the united states and treat it as one country and everyone everyone in london just sees this like wealth of opportunity here but i think you actually go to these different places and you treat that you know there's a different um vibe or a different way yeah. in each one and i think having that understanding helps you really you know do a better job for your clients and, and be able to relate to them. And so I think traveling has broadened my horizons and also it's broadened my insight. And I think that's so important. So, I mean, I've, I've been to Saudi Arabia, I've been to oh, geez. Wow. Taiwan. And, and, you know, I always think, right, I always try and read up about the cultural differences or try and put, you know, try and do as much research as I can, bef- you know, before I go somewhere like that or see somebody, um, 
And so it's not just like that jet set lifestyle. You come into New York, everyone thinks, oh, it's so glamorous. You know, you should <laughs> see me at the airport with my suitcases and my swatches. And I think I'm getting too old for this. I need to send the young ones out. <laughs> but, you know, I've got some great people here that I love working with. And I just think they come and they see what you've made for them and they talk about the next thing and they build up to the fact that you're coming. And um, It's true. There is a lot of great. excitement when yeah. the Taylor's coming where, you know, like out for myself, like I have all these things in my head. I'm like, okay, my ultimate wardrobe. All right, I'm getting rid of half of this stuff and I'm just just going to have this, you know, these two blue jackets mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I want to get like a custom like pea coat, you know, I mean, oh. which is like almost kind of like the anti thing, right? But I love I a pea coat. Yeah. I do. And it's, you know, you can do something that's really casual. You could do something that's really military influenced. You know, there's so much like, there's not just one peacoat, you know. The, yeah. And then you look at fabrics and buttons and button spacing. Yeah, and see? Length of a coat. And <laughs> how casual do you want it to be, Jeremy? You know, and I, I mean, I, I'm, busy, I'm, I'm making it in my mind already. We have to take measurements. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's the styles and it's the different things. But, you know, it's, it's the seasons as well. I mean, you really need a winter wardrobe here and a, and a oh, summer yeah. wardrobe. Like in London, pretty much it's the same drizzly weather all year round. So you yeah. can get away with wearing a coat for a couple of months and then the rest of it is actually saying that we've had a good summer which none of us could cope with in terms of our tailoring <laughs> but you know I do think there's definitely like a rich market for it here and I think clients here really appreciate um, craft mm. they appreciate the cloths as well and the look is very different I mean there's so much um, European tailoring here and brands and right I think menswear like I was at Birddorf Goodman earlier today and I was just on a trip was actually meeting some of the buyers there and you know not because I'm intending to do something it's just understanding the customers here and understanding what how how menswear is being displayed and um how they work with their tailors and and stuff so it's, it's really you've got to go out and you've got to look and see what everyone else is doing and learn from it that's awesome well, Catherine, it was a pleasure to talk to you. This is really good. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Thanks. All right. We'll see you. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Just email us and say, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you in. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.